Well, if you see the, uh, the bracelets that are there, and if you're a certain vintage, you'll know what those four letters mean, WWJD. They'll be familiar to you. Uh, in the 1990s, uh, Jane Tinklenburg, a youth pastor, wanting her Michigan, Michigan youth group to think about what Jesus wanted to do, what Jesus would do in everyday situations, brought these four words out of a book that she had read earlier in her life, read, written by Reverend Charles Sheldon, called In His Steps. And the words, or the, the initials stand for, what would Jesus do? Whenever you had a relational or an ethical difficulty, you were to pause, you were to think, if Jesus was here, what would he do in this circumstance, in this situation? Miss Tinklenburg had bracelets and t-shirts and posters and bumper stickers made up with those four letters, and it became a very familiar sight, a very familiar um, saying for about a dozen years. And, and while the sentiment was right and the question was appropriate, there, there grew out of this two very difficult problems with this phrase, what would Jesus do? The, the first being, people don't know Jesus well enough, don't know how counterculture, how clearly defined his, his teaching was, didn't realize how different he thought and acted in comparison to the rest of the population. And, and they couldn't say what Jesus would do because they didn't know well enough to know what it was he would do. They couldn't understand a way of life that, that insists that you love your enemies and that you do good to those who do you wrong. And the second problem was not a lot different than the first, other than instead of conforming to the pattern, to the example of Jesus, people attempted to make Jesus fit into the way that they thought, the way that they acted. They couldn't find a specific word about what Jesus thought about various contemporary problems and issues that were in front of them, and so they speculated that he would do exactly what I am doing right now if he was here. And, and very often, nothing could be further from the truth. The, the, the Savior of the world who made creation was very certain and committed to the building of his church and is described as the one who loved the church and gave his life for it. And yet, there were those who saw nature as their cathedral and gathering together with the people of God locally as an optional and unimportant activity. They put those words in the mouth of Jesus and they excused their own participation in the church. The scripture says that Jesus came to earth not to condemn us for what we had done wrong, but to save us from the sin that was keeping us separated from our loving Father. And headed to a, a dismal punishment for our sins. And Matthew writes that from the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus began to preach, turn away from your sins. Turn away from what is wrong and turn to God because the kingdom of God has come to where you are right now. And so there was this, this turning away and going his way. 
From that moment on, he, he taught there was a better way, a different way than what they were currently experiencing. And so, come follow me, he said. I, I will take you to life that is full, that is overflowing, that is abundant. And by the time we get to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has chosen 12 men who will, he will train, he will equip, men who will eventually be transformed in the way that they think, in the way that they act, and, and he will have them travel with them. And whoever wants to be my disciple, Jesus teaches, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and daily follow me. This is pretty radical stuff. And, and, and he goes on and says, not my will, but your will be done in my life, O God. Not, not just words in a memorized prayer, but a direction that we take in every choice, in every decision of our lives. If we confess that we're followers, imitators, disciples of Jesus Christ, we don't do it our way. We do it his way. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus starts to, to train these 12 men, starts to transform them in the way that they think, the way that they speak, the way that they act, in, in the way that they look at the world. And, and he calls them to be servants of the world. Doesn't say, I want you to be political bullies or, or masters of the race. He, he requires that they imitate God in everything you do because you are his dear children. And so he's got these 12 and he starts wandering and verse 1 of chapter 5 says this. One day he saw the crowds gathering and, and Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down and his disciples gathered around him. The bigger crowd outside of that little circle, and he began to teach them. So, so Jesus is traveling by the Sea of Galilee, and on this particular day, he's not only followed by the twelve, but, but there are crowds who have gathered to hear what it is he has to say and to see the miracles that he is becoming renowned for. What mighty acts might he do today? What does he have to say that will be exciting to hear today? And, and Luke records that at this early stage of Jesus' ministry, power was coming from Jesus and he was healing them all. And, and the crowds came to watch. They, they were intrigued. They were drawn in. They wanted to see. And, and so he sits down and he begins to teach them. The, the primary audience, of course, is his disciples, but what he had to say is of importance to everybody that was there and everybody who's here today. It's important that we hear these things. He, he begins with eight short statements about behavior, about attitude. If we follow these instructions, they will result in full joy for the follower, for the believer in Jesus Christ. These eight statements are called the Beatitudes. Eight statements that pronounce blessing on you, blessing on people who adopt and live out these values. Eight character traits that are each attached to a specific promised blessing. Let's talk a little bit about God blessing us. What, what, what does that mean, God bless 
In, in these eight statements, the, the, living new, or the New Living Translation promises that God blesses people who do this or do that. And, and we use the, the word blessing frequently. Someone sneezes, God bless you. Uh, we, we conclude a conversation. We write at the bottom of a note that we're sending to a friend or a relative, uh, bless you. But, but what does that mean? What, what happens when we say that? When God says, I will bless those who adopt these values, this lifestyle, what, what is he saying? What, what is he promising to you, to me? Versions or various translations struggle to find a, an English word or phrase that makes it clear and understandable to us as modern day readers. And, and some translate it, you will be happy if you do these things. Others say, you will be fortunate you will be enriched. You will find you have more than you have thought you had. You, you'll discover what it is to have full joy or joy to the fullest measure. The, the best wording that I've seen is described this way. If you adopt this attitude, it will produce in you all that's necessary for a full, meaningful, complete life. You will be blessed. If you keep your heart pure, that's the standard, then you will be rewarded by seeing, by knowing, by finding God. That's the promise. All eight statements speak of relationship, our relationship with God. If you're connected with Him, if you live the life He has described and prescribed for you, then your fortunes will be reversed because of the direct divine transaction. If you choose to live and act according to the statement, God will reward, enrich, enhance your life and everything about it. God will bless you. And everybody wants to be blessed. I want to be blessed. You want to be blessed. Everyone we know wants to be blessed. Everyone wants to be enriched. Not everyone is ready or willing to courageously Move to thinking differently than the patterns that we are familiar with. So, so, so Jesus is saying here, you get to decide. You get to choose a lot about your life, about your influence, about your fulfillment, your, your placement in the kingdom by what you determine to do with these eight statements. Jesus helps you. Jesus transforms you. Jesus will renew your mind, your thinking, if he's allowed to talk to you and to me about mindsets that we are both born with because we are born in sin and shaped by iniquity. The decision is always ours. What will we do with these statements? What will we adopt? What will we let go of? Let's, let's look at two of them today. The first one's found in verse 3. Of Matthew chapter 5. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, some of you are saying, well, I must be really blessed because I'm really poor today, you know. But he's not talking about your bank account or your asset count and tally. He, he, he's talking about your value outside of God. He's talking spiritually. 
Luke chapter 18, Jesus is again speaking to a crowd and he, and he tells a story and he's aiming his story at, um, at two, uh, people who think that they're, they're pretty well put together, that they're pretty, instru- pretty informed, pretty strong persons spiritually. And, and he uses two men to illustrate his point. He talks about a Pharisee and about a tax collector. Pharisees were educated, very well educated in Jewish tradition and well acquainted with the laws of Moses. They were a religious, political sect. They they believed in life after death. They were well looked after financially. They were usually small landowners or or traders and and professional people. They saw that everything they had was a sign of God's blessing and approval on their life and lifestyles. If you had less than the Pharisee who lived next door to you, it was because God loved him more. God saw his devotion was greater than yours. At least this is what the Pharisee thought. And, and, and you were sloppy and undisciplined in the life you lived. The, the Pharisees were proud that by, of the fact that they could trace their family line right back to, to Abraham. They were proud about how much they knew about their history, their culture, about God and his law. They were very satisfied that they had earned God's approval and so were just certain that God could hardly wait for them to come and live with him. He was so excited by that. And and they were God's favorite children, at least in their own mind, maybe even God's only children. That's how they looked at it. Tax collectors, on the other hand, were a, a different breed of cat altogether. They, they were despised. They worked for the enemy. They, they were Jewish, but they collected taxes from the citizens of Israel, and they sent those, those funds back to Rome. And, and, and they were not invited to the weddings of their neighbor's children. They, they were not members of a, the social club. They were treated like outcasts by Jewish society. And, and they were social outcasts, and they were looked on as spiritual outcasts. And so Jesus takes these two very familiar men in the culture of the day, and he says, I want to tell you a story. The Pharisee, and the tax collector go to temple to pray. And, and the Pharisee prays out loud so that everyone who's around him can hear how blessed and how loved he is by God. He prays this, I, I thank God that I'm not like other people. I, I, I'm not a cheater and I'm, I'm not a, a, a common sinner or an adulterer. I am certainly not like that man, that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give one-tenth of my income to the temple. You're pretty lucky to have such a devoted follower as me in your family of faith, God. There's nothing wrong with fasting. There's nothing wrong with tithing and to the house and the work of God. In fact, we're, we're instructed to do that. But this man is so good in his own eyes that he doesn't really need a savior. He, he's become self-righteous and has found salvation in his own goodness and his own purity. And, and he doesn't need God. He believes that God needs him just because he's such an outstanding example of goodness. And, and the tax collector 
was at temple to pray at the very same time. However, his prayer is, is very different, both in content and tone. He, he didn't pray out loud for everyone to hear. He, he didn't flaunt his spectacular spirituality. His eyes, rather, are cast down, and he kept hitting his chest as a sign of his sorrow and regret for the sin he's committed. And he says, God, I'm... I'm a sinner. I'm here in front of you and I don't deserve to be here. But I ask that you would be full of mercy in your treatment of me. I need your help. I need your salvation. And Jesus says, let me tell you which man was heard, which man was answered by God. God heard the sinner. And, and did not listen to the Pharisee. The sinner had his prayer answered. The, the Pharisee didn't think he needed God to do anything for him because he was, at least in his own eyes, a very good man and did very good things. But Jesus says, my kingdom is different than the world's way of doing things. If, if you exalt yourself, then heaven will make sure that at some point you're humbled. If you are humble, then heaven will be sure at the proper time that you are exalted. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 3, every person who has lived will, or ever will live is held under the power of sin. We're all sinners. He writes that no one is good. No one. He writes that no one has real understanding of sin or their desperate need of a Savior. That none of us left on our own is seeking for God. That every one of us has rebelled and turned away from God. That there is no good found in any of us naturally. That this is just raw, basic instinct and desire to sin. That's who we are. We all need a Savior. And Jesus says that God blesses those who are spiritually who realize that they need the help of Jesus in everything they do. God is pleased with those people who know they, they have great spiritual need, who, who recognize they are spiritually bankrupt and helpless outside of him. The, the, the poor in spirit are those who are devoid of spiritual arrogance. Those who regard themselves as spiritually insignificant outside of who God is in them and what God is doing for them and through them. Jesus keeps reinforcing this understanding with statements like this, without me, you can do nothing of spiritual significance. God resists, pushes away the proud. Woe to you Pharisees who, who fight to keep out of the kingdom yourself, and you won't let anyone else into the kingdom. You won't let others who are trying to enter, you won't let them in either. He says there's a problem here. God, God blesses those who understand that they are spiritually poor and recognize that they need the help of Jesus in everything they do because God will reward. God will bless, enrich them by giving them access to all that heaven has and all that heaven is. The, the, the proud he will resist, the poor he will pour out on them all that he has, all that he is. We, we look at those two men and we sort of sneer, oh, that arrogant Pharisee. 
we, we can't believe that anyone would be that proud, that stuck on themselves, that self-important. However, we don't, fully, we don't fully identify with the tax collector either. After all, we're in church this morning. Let's put a mark on the wall. We, we put something in, in the offering. Let's put another mark on the wall. And, and when it's appropriate and convenient, we, we volunteer. And, and, and we're not really like that, that tax collector. We're somewhere in between. We, we want a third option. We want someone in the middle. And, and Jesus says there is no third option. There are only two kinds of people. Those who think they are rich and those who know that they are spiritually poor. Those are the only two kinds. And, and the point that Jesus is making is that we have to understand that we have nothing outside of what Jesus has given to us. Scripture says that nobody comes even to the Father. Nobody just decides, you know, today would be a good day to give my heart to Jesus. That doesn't happen unless the Father draws him. Nothing happens except God does that. We, we can't even come up with desire. The, 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 the lesson is not that we are to be a people that look down at the ground and beat our chest and sing songs of the sinner all the time. We're, we're blessed. We're enriched people for sure. However, there's not one good thing that I have done, that you have done, that gives us that expectation. All that we have, all that we are, is only because of His grace, only because of His mercy. And, and, and the requirements that God makes are difficult and they're challenging and, and can only be reached when we are touched by His strength, His ability, His desire. We, we make up our own spirituality and, and think that it's, it's just as good as what God offers. When, when He says to us that we should discipline our minds, have our mindsets renewed and transformed, we see that as challenging. We see that as difficult and time-consuming, and so we choose Christian life light, and we opt out of that part of the program. There's a lot written about prayer, and we see sometimes that prayer is time-consuming. It's taxing. It's difficult, and so we postpone our involvement, our commitment until a more convenient season of life, and we walk away from prayer. Character. Character can be addressed when, when we reach that sweet spot of life when time and passion will magically meld into an opportunity for God to touch my life at the retirement village that I will buy in Dominican Republic. Or we, we think, you know, gathering together with your people for prayer, for teaching, for the word, for fellowship and encouragement especially as we get closer and closer to the return of Jesus, that, that seems like a pretty harsh, demanding regime. I, I think that we'll alter that request to read that I will attend when it's convenient, when it fits into my schedule. God, God, you probably had no idea how difficult and demanding life in the 21st century would be, and so I'm just going to allow that exemption towards faithfulness to be reworded. In my case, we end up with something that looks something like a Frankenstein spirituality that has parts shopped from this philosophy and from that faith tradition and from this personal preference that I have and from that strongly held opinion that doesn't stand up to the scrutiny of God's, 
God's Word, we end up looking a little bit like the Pharisee. We create our own spiritual standards that fit our unique, rebellious state of mind. Convenient to what I'm doing here and now, today. And it just looks ever so much like the Pharisees and what they did and said. It's gotten very quiet in here. The proper, the healthy, the honest and helpful prayer is, God, I'm a mess. I need all of you that I can get. Help me. Be merciful to me. I'm, f- I'm, I'm a sinner. What, what would Jesus do? He would tell you not to be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You, you must have this same attitude, this same mind that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. That's what Jesus did. The WWJD bracelet is looking like a little bit of jewelry that doesn't fit our personal style right now, does it? It's it's pretty demanding. Verse 4. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The, the, the second statement is a surprise to the audience that sits by the Sea of Galilee as well. He, he's, he's not talking about those who have been bereaved, those who have lost a loved one to death. There are other places where he promises that he will heal the brokenhearted, that he'll walk with you through that loss. However, Jesus is speaking to our posture, to our reaction to sin. Sin that is found in us and is found in the communities where we live. We're we're not programmed because of our sin nature to react violently against sin. In, In fact, Jesus teaches that we have, because of our sinful nature, we've adapted and adopted a lifestyle so that we don't like walking in the light as Christ walks in the light, but have become accustomed to living in the dark because we don't want people to know, to see what we do in private. We we, we don't like it when... When people are watching, we, we've built a spiritual resistance to conviction and excused ourselves to live in a place of compromise. And so that we can keep on doing what comes easily, comes comfortably to us. And Jesus teaches in this second statement that God blesses the person who is not comfortable, refuses to be comfortable, uh, but is very uncomfortable, unhappy in the midst of sin. Persons who love Jesus so much that when they do something that breaks his heart, it breaks theirs too, and they mourn. They're sorrow-filled. They're saddened by their own actions. Acts, or Matthew chapter 7, as an example, Jesus says, I want you to stop judging others. Judging is such a common thing to do. 
We, we all do it. it. It comes naturally, whether we do it to make ourselves look and feel better than those that we judge or because we feel that others need us telling them that they're doing it wrong because they're not as aware as we are. So, so we have an obligation to point out to them and to others that they have gone the wrong way. Jesus says, just stop it. Don't judge it. It doesn't help it. It it poisons the atmosphere so that when someone in your midst needs to cry out, I need help, someone help me, they won't do it here because they, they don't need the judgment on top of the problems that they're already juggling. And so Jesus says, so be spiritually sensitive to to the natural practice of judgment. If, if you do it, realize that it's wrong and be sorry for what you've done. Confess, repent, decide that it won't be part of your life or practice any longer. God being your help, you will be a person who loves unconditionally. is a safe place for people to land. But you mourn and, and you're sorrowful for your own sins and failings. You, you keep so close to Jesus, so buried in his word, that you will not allow yourself to, to wander into wrongdoing. David says, your word have I hidden in my heart, that I have that standard in front of me all the time and I don't end up sinning against you. We choose, we choose to tolerate no sin in our life rather than choosing a season of rebellion. Uh, but, but we'll respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit immediately and repent. Jesus says, if you, if you mourn for your wrongdoing, if you choose to live that way, there comes a divine reward. A, a promise will be fulfilled in that sorrow for sin. God himself will come to you, will comfort, strengthen make you courageous to move forward. You'll be released from the guilt, from the residue of the sin by God himself. What would Jesus do? 1 John 1 says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And so we're lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in a spiritual darkness. We, we're not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship one with the other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If, if we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar. And showing that his word has no place in our hearts. It doesn't get much clearer than that. What would Jesus do? And that's all about the personal response to sin in our life. According to the current state of thought in our world, we don't have a problem with sin anymore. We have our own truth. We have alternative lifestyles. We have a right to express our rights, our freedoms. We're entitled to do whatever feels right to us as individuals. And God says that might be acceptable in a world system, but it's not how the king of heaven runs his kingdom. 
you learn to live obediently and to mourn your sin and your failing. Personal responsibility. But there's also a corporate or a larger picture of what it means to mourn over sin. In a world like ours, we have so much information being pushed at us all the time, available to us. We can watch the bombs falling in Kiev. We, we can see the gore in the aftermath of yesterday's shooting in Buffalo, New York, where a young gunman shot and killed 10 people just because of his hatred. Or pictures of the catastrophic famine in Yemen or South Sudan or any number of other places in the world. We can travel the globe going from disaster to tragedy to catastrophe. So much information leaving us feeling numb, leaving us feeling unconnected to what sin is doing in the bigger picture. Something is spiritually wrong with us as his people if we've not mourned the loss of Angela McKenzie this week. A woman killed just 20 blocks from our front door this week. A mother of five in what's being described as a road rage incident. If that doesn't hurt, if that doesn't crush us, we don't know how to mourn. If we're not asking, what can we do to support that family? To support the Salvation Army congregation that's lost one of its family members. We mourn and we, we're to cry out, God, our world is such a mess. Because we've left you out of the life equation and now we are reaping the reward of that bad choice. Father, we are so sorry for the sins of our nation, the state of our city, and the state of my heart. A people that mourns the sins of our nation will remember the promise that is given to us in the Old Testament. That if my people, you and me, who are called by not my name, will humble themselves, will pray and will seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and will heal their lands. Blessed are they who mourn. They will be comforted. And the prayer that just flows out of me today is, God, comfort our city. Come, comfort our city. Moira, will you come to the keyboard, please? What would Jesus do? Well, we know what he would do because we've, we've got his example. He, he wept over his city. He wept over what sin is doing to that city, and, and then he gave his life to save the citizens of that city. He loved the world, and he gave his life for it. This, this teaching that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 5 is, is so radical, so counterculture that it takes a courage, it takes a supernatural strength to stand up and declare, God being my help, I will live according to the plan and the call of my King. What would Jesus do? It's a good question. 
it deserves to be asked. It, it needs to be wrestled with. We can't assume that we know the answer if we, we do not know the king personally and, and possess a vibrant relationship with him. We, we cannot force him to fit into a box that we have built with our own thoughts, our own fears, our own values because he just doesn't fit. We have to instead allow him to transform and to renew our minds. So that we will see the world through his eyes. We will feel the pain that he feels in his heart. I'm often asked, you're a Pentecostal. Why is the church not the power-filled force that it was designed to have been. When will we see the church filled with power again? When the church makes some decisions. I've given you two of eight answers out of this part of Scripture today. We'll never have power if we're unaware of our own spiritual poverty. If we think that we can go to powerful just because we think we're good. We're not heartbroken by, by the violence, by the destruction of sin in our lives personally and corporately as a city. We tolerate. We compromise. We live in darkness. We're stage actors playing a part when we stand in the light. And somehow we've become disconnected to what sin is doing to the people that God loves around us. What would Jesus do? He would say, humble yourselves. Recognize declare your spiritual poverty, mourn your sin, cry out, God, not my will, but your will be done. I need you to know that we're going to be in this for about four Sundays that I'm speaking, and they don't get easier. They get more challenging. We, we have to wrestle with who we are and where we are, how close we allow him to come to us and how deep into him we push ourselves. And so for these last number of weeks as I've been preparing for this series, I have declared on your behalf as your pastor that I choose to put my faith in the king of this kingdom to live in obedience to his words so that I can live my life, operate in the full measure of grace and power that he has given to his church, live under the full blessing of who he is. Will you bow your heads with me today? Thank you, Father. Father, I'm so grateful that you don't leave us wondering who we are or where we fit in. You, you don't 
leave us standing out in the rain wondering what what's next you you speak you challenge you you confront with love because you love us so much that you don't want us to stay where we are but you want to bring us to the fullness of what you designed us to be and so father i ask for your help as we wrestle our way through these eight statements that we would find it in us, ourselves to surrender to what you're asking of us so that we could receive the fullness of the promise and the blessing that you've given to us. While every head is bowed and every eye is closed, there's two people that I want to pray for today, two kinds of people that I want to pray for. Perhaps you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've never said, I need you. Will you come into my life? And, and, and if that's the case, in just a moment, I'm, I'm going to invite you to slip up your hand, and I'll see it, and when I've seen it, you can take it down. And, and, and the other group is people who just say, Pastor Bill, I'm really struggling here right now. I, I see some things in myself that you, you brought out through the Scriptures, and, and I recognize that there's a fight in front of me, and I'm just asking that you will pray for me this coming week, that you'll, you'll just pray that I have the courage and the, the grace of God to do what I need to do. I need you to pray for me. And so if that's, if that's you just now, will you raise your hand until I see it? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes, thank you. Yes, yeah. Anyone else? So Father... Thank you for being our Father, for being gracious, for speaking truth in love to each and every one of us. We, we have to wrestle some stuff to the ground. We, we have to come into alignment with the, and compliance with what your kingdom is requiring. And so, Father, we surrender the glad surrender to you and ask for your help and for your strength. Father, for those that are in a spiritual conflict right now, Holy Spirit, will you come? Will you stand beside them? Will you, will you strengthen them and embolden them to be who they were meant to be? For, for those who are backing off from the conflict, I pray, Jesus, that you would surround them with, their love, with your love and that they would know that there's no way running away from your love and your grace. Be so close to them, so real. For those who are accepting Jesus for the very first time, I pray, God, that you would help them to get into your word, to call out to you and to talk to you and to sit and listen for your voice because you promise that your sheep who are called by your name will know your voice. Father, we're so grateful for this time together and for your word. Don't let us walk away from the mirror and forget what we've seen. Let us wrestle it through this week, we pray. For this time of fellowship and, and food that we're going to take part in now, I, I pray for your blessing on each and every person. Thank you for providing for our needs. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.